Good morning, friends at the Compass Church, at all four of our campuses. This is uh, just an exciting time for our church. We're actually, this weekend, beginning our fourth quarter. You know, when you're watching football, the most exciting quarter to watch is the fourth quarter, right? Well, we kind of track our ministry season along with the school year. So our ministry season starts September the 1st. Our financial fiscal year, it all begins September 1st. And so I thought that before I dive into this final message on fearless, I would talk uh, just a bit about an update. How are we doing as a church as we sit at the beginning of our fourth quarter? And I'll give you a bit of an attendance update. Some are like, come on, attendance. Can't stand numbers in churches. Well, we're, we're really not into numbers either. We're into people. And every number represents a name, and every name represents a story. And Jesus is changing people. He's always been in the people business. And so we, we track attendance just to see how we're doing when it comes to reaching others. And uh, in this last three quarters, our average attendance has been 3,900 people, which is an all-time high. It's 200 people above what it was a year ago. And that is uh, so encouraging to me because all four campuses are growing. Uh, You know, it's not just one campus. Uh, We're seeing God moving at South Naperville like crazy. We're seeing God moving at Wheaton. We're seeing God moving at Hobson. And and then at Bolingbrook. Do you know the fastest growing campus uh, in our churches? You people at Bolingbrook. You know, the Bolingbrook campus is uh, 30% higher than it was a year ago. And we're just amazed at what God's doing there. So praise the Lord for. uh, Oh, we're clapping. Uh, Let me just update on the giving side of things, and this is another moment where I am so delighted to praise God for his faithfulness and your generosity. Our budget to date, uh, we needed to raise $6.6 million, and you know how much has come in? $6.6 $6.6 million. It's amazing. You know, we set a stretch faith goal. All right, well, we'll for that. We, we set a stretch goal a year ago, and to see it come in exactly is just such a huge answer to prayer. Now, I, I will tell you that the fourth quarter of our fiscal year is inevitably the most challenging one. The summer tends to be a time where we see Some of you a little more sporadic in attendance, and where there's sporadic attendance, there tends to be sporadic giving. And so I just want to mention a solution that uh, people are increasingly choosing, and that is uh, online giving, you know, electronic giving. You know that a lot of times people are turning to pay their utilities automatically so they don't even have to think about it. They don't have to write a check. And a lot of us are utilizing that for giving to, to the Lord as well. And uh, it, it's a great way. In fact, this is curious. I've, I've been here five years. Five years ago, 10% of our giving was electronic. Uh, five years later now, 30, three times that, 30% of our giving is electronic. It's just a trend that continues to move. So consider that as an option. There's a number of ways you can set that up. Uh, and that can be a way that you can remain consistent and our church can be blessed through this important quarter coming up. I just want to thank all of the generous folks. You know, some are able to give a little, some are able to give much. The Lord is honored by and using it all. And I read uh, this week, John 14, verse 21. 
Jesus speaking, he says, those who really love me will do what I have commanded. Apparently, love is translated into obedience when it works the way it's supposed to. And love is a big deal at the Compass Church. Our, our, our mission statement is to love him more. So more love him. And my, my passion, our passion, our prayer is that, God, please let us be a people who are seeing how awesome you are, your beauty, and falling in love with you, hearts screaming with zeal for you at unprecedented levels. And when it happens right, love leads to obedience, to where there is a total life submission. And we just say, Jesus, like, I'm yours. In every way, let your will be done in my life. Uh, when it's, uh, if I've got a gift, uh, a spiritual gift to serve, I'll serve you in your church. Financially, I'll obey. You call to tithe, I'll tithe. Uh, when it comes to people, you want me to be your ambassador in the neighborhood? Well, it's going to be interesting, but I'll try. I will reach out in my neighborhood, at my workplace, in my family. But every arena, because of love, I want to totally submit. That is happening in so many of you. You know, I love folks who at first are like not bowing to Christ as Lord at all. And then I see God win their hearts and their life gradually transform to this place of all that matters to me is that you would lead and take my life. And may that happen more and more at all four campuses throughout our church. May this summer not just be a coast through the summer, but a a season of great ministry growth in us and through us. We pray towards that end right now. Let's do that. Lord, as we've just reflected on some of the metrics, we praise you for the vitality, for the health, and for your faithful provision in our church. You have been good to us. We see it and we're grateful. But God, we long for your church to shine with greater brilliance as you intend. So take us. The the Compass Church is yours. All four campuses, we are yours. This summer, this quarter, would you move in us and through us and make this a delight, a delight to us as we see you at work, a delight to you as you are glorified in your church like you intend. We trust you. We're clinging to you. We're following you. We're obeying you because we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we've been in a seven-week series called Fearless, and now we have arrived at the end of it. So let's take a look at facing the fear of death. Hey, this is a sensitive one. This is an important one. This is a universal one. You know we're all going to die, right? You know, some of us, how many decades do you have left? Someone say, oh, I think I got eight decades. Yeah, I'm lucky if I got three. Uh, Friends, this is a reality that we've all got to stare straight into the eye of, and death can be scary. It was for the guy who gave me this book. I treasure this book. Uh, It was given to me by a a father of a friend. This friend had said, Jeff, my dad wants to meet with a pastor. Would you please go to his house and meet with him? So I did. The guy was brilliant. Uh, He wrote the book, for one, and he turns out he's an electrical engineer by trade, kind of a renaissance man because he's also an inventor, a poet, a philosopher, an author. And he gave me this book upon meeting him right away. And he said, Jeff, 
This is kind of like what I've learned about how to do life well. I want you to have this book. He said, I've studied life a lot. I've spent many years reading about how to do life well. He says, I feel like I've arrived at something. He goes, the problem is this. I don't know how to die. He said, a doctor tells me that my cancer is stage four and that I've got a couple months to live. And I saw it in his face. He says, I am terrified of death. He said, I've not thought about it. I kind of thought I'd be here forever. And now I realize death is staring me in the face. And I am scared to death. Can you help me? And I said, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about death. And I actually turned to a passage in Philippians that I want to study with you. I actually met with him a number of times and studied a number of passages, but this is one he found particularly meaningful, as do I. Maybe you do as well. I think you will by the time we're done studying it. Philippians 1, four verses. Uh, Paul's writing to a church in a city called Philippi. And I'm just going to read the four verses, and then we'll go back and kind of look at them one by one. Paul writes, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ may be exalted in my body, whether that be through life or by death. For to me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I really don't know. I'm, I'm kind of torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. All right, good stuff. Let's go back to verse 20, the first verse we looked at here. And I just want to point out that Paul is expecting, hoping, he'll have sufficient courage to face death. What, why does he have a potential of death? Is he an old man? No. He's been arrested for being a Christian, thrown into prison. He's awaiting trial, and the government was persecuting Christians, and he runs a high probability that they will sentence him to execution. And he doesn't know. He goes, I may live. I may get some sentence short of death, but it's likely, maybe even probable, that I will be killed in the days ahead. And so Paul is staring death in the eyes. And he wants to die well. Isn't that cool? He wants to bring exaltation to Jesus. He says, I want, whether I got to live or whether I die, this is going to take courage either way. But I want to do it in a way that brings glory to God. Don't you feel the same way? I know I do. When it comes for that chapter of my story, I want to have the courage to face death in a way that brings glory to Christ. And so Paul's, he's acknowledging it takes courage. That's encouraging. Uh, the reason being, Paul knows death is scary. It's, death is a transition that's entirely foreign to us, at least in our own experience. We've never done this before. And somehow, we've got to do it well. And so Paul says that requires courage, or you will be fearful in the face of death. Paul wants to be fearless as he stares death down. Let's figure out how to do that. Next verse, verse 21, the simple refrain. For to me, Paul says, to live, it's Christ. I, I love that. 
Paul's like, you know, my whole life is about Jesus. I'm just kind of a Jesus person. I, I adore Christ. I used to be against Christ. Paul was a great opposer of the church. But now he loved Jesus above all else. Christ has saved his soul, forgiven his sin, empowered his life, filled him with joy. When he wakes up in the morning, he's like, Jesus, let's do this day. I mean, to live, it's Jesus. But then I've highlighted this phrase. To die, according to Paul, is gain. Isn't that an odd statement? Most people in our world see death as the ultimate loss, right? I mean, you have lost life. You've lost relationships. You've lost all your stuff. You can't take it with you. Most people look at death as the ultimate loss. But Paul would say, oh, no, 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 no. To the Christian who dies in Christ... To die is great gain. And you're like, how so, Paul? Well, let's see if we can understand what he's referring to as we press on in the verse. Next verse, uh, verse 21-22. Paul says, if I go on living in the Bible, should this trial turn out to where I still live? What it will mean for me is fruitful labor. And by labor, he's referring to his ministry, his encouragements of people, his helping people grow. He said, the upside of if I live is that I will be able to bless a lot of people. In fact, if I die, it'll be bad for them. But Paul, as you'll see in a moment, is going to say, I'm, I'm kind of torn between the two because I'd rather die. For me personally, Paul says, uh, it is a win for me if I make that transition to be with Christ. That's really insightful because that's the reality of death for a Christian. Death for a Christian is awesome for the one who's dying. It's, it's awful for those who are behind grieving the loss of that one who has been so important to them, the one who's encouraged them, loved them, ministered to them. And so is death bad? Well, it's terrible for those left behind who have to grieve the loss. It's wonderful for the one who dies. At least Paul believes that. Look what he says next. He says, for, uh, next verse, I desire to depart. What I want is to die. I want to be with Christ, which is better by far. This simple refrain helps us understand why in Paul's eyes and in ours, if we have a biblical perspective, death is gain. This simple three-line refrain points to three ways that we need to see death so that we'll realize death is gain. So what are they? Well, let's start here. Paul says, I desire to depart. That's a very interesting word. Did Paul say, I desire to die? He could have, but that would have not as been as helpful to show us what he views death to be. He sees death as a departure. Does he say, I desire to end my life? No. Death is not an end in the mind of Paul. Death is a beginning. In fact, the word depart, the Greek word that's translated depart, is a nautical term. It's a shipping term. I'm Norwegian. I, I got shipping in my blood. Or at least I want to believe that. And uh, I love this imagery. Imagine a ship, all right? It's at the dock, and the captain is checking to see that all of the passengers are aboard, Check. He sees that all of his crew are in place. Check. He sees that all the equipment is ready, and he says, all right, folks, let's 
depart. And they untie the boat and push it away from the dock and hoist the sails and the wind thrusts the boat over the waves and there's the spray of the salt water in your face as the boat sails out of the harbor onto the high seas. That's death. Friends, Paul understood that going to heaven is not boring. I know a lot of people are like, well, I'm not into playing the harp and wearing a robe and walking on clouds, you know. That's a caricature of heaven that is unbiblical. The Bible says heaven will be an adventure where the very best of us is demanded as we fill out our role, fulfill our role that God has given us to advance his cause and exalt his kingdom. And so know this. If you imagine death as the end, you've bought a lie. Paul would say, no, no, no. That death is the beginning. It's embarking. It's departing in the most glorious way. Uh, one of the, I look at even the language we use. We so frequently view death as the end. We'll, we'll say, you know, my illness is terminal. What does terminal mean? It's all going to end. Or we talk about people needing end-of-life care. Really? Is that the end of life? It's the end of this life, but not the end of life. It's the beginning. When I've even thought of the nurses. You know, we have midwife nurses who help children enter the world. And we have uh, hospice nurses who help people end. No! If you view those two nurses as... Uh, opposites, you're missing the point. They're actually very similar. They are both transition specialists, helping people make huge transitions into newness of life. You know, the midwife helps a little baby who's like coming out of mom and goes, whoa, my new world. And that's death. Death, you know, the hospice nurse helps that person Transitions are scary, but when we explode into the newness of life God has prepared for us, we will realize what fools we were to think of death as the end. You know, if you're a long-time compass person, you may recall years ago I shared about my daughter Jora going to Disneyland, Disney World, excuse me, Florida, Magic Kingdom, she was so excited, maybe three or four years old at the time. And uh, I was pumping it up saying, you are in for the time of your life. The best way to enjoy the Magic Kingdom is through the eyes of a little kid, right? And I even uh, sold the monorail. Look, at here's a picture of the monorail. You know about this thing? I, I told her, Jora, at Disney World, even the trains fly. She's like, they do. And, and it looks like it. When you are a little kid with your face pressed against the glass, you can't see the rail it's on. All you know is, and Jorah just bought a hook, line, and sinker. We're flying, Dad, we're flying. I'm like, this is great. Until the monorail ended and the door opened and all the people started leaving. Jorah cried. It's over now. I don't want it to be over. And then I realized I had pushed the monorail too far. I said, no, Jora, listen, this is not it, honey. Look, look. I pointed to Cinderella's castle. I'm like, that's the magic kingdom. This is just the thing to get to it. It's not the, the it. You know, and 
don't you see that life is a monorail ride? And for so many of us, the doors open at death and people are like, all right, get off. And we're like, no, no, I can't end. We're fools, friends. This is just a monorail. This is not it. This is just the thing that gets us to it. We were made for heaven and life with God in the fullest expression of his creative genius. And so don't weep about getting off the monorail. Look up! The kingdom of Jesus Christ lies before you in the fullness of expression. So as we go to the next slide and look again, don't view death as an end. It is ultimately embarking on the adventure of all time. All right, and be with Christ. The second thing Paul points out is that heaven at its very core is being with Christ, being with Jesus. And you may theologically push back on Paul and say, technically we're with Jesus even now in this life. Remember the Lord before he ascended said, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the age. And so Paul We can relate to Jesus presently. We can have a friendship with him. We can pray and talk to him through prayer, and he can speak to us through his spirit and through the Bible. In fact, you may say, Paul, the greatest joy in my life is a relationship with Jesus now. And Paul would say, yeah, I get it. I'm in the same boat. But Paul says, I will be with him then at a whole nother level. I mean, today, though we talk with him, we can't audibly hear him. We can't visibly see him. We can't tangibly touch him and embrace him. And yet, friends, when we step into heaven, the the relating with the Lord we've enjoyed in this life will explode into relational heights that will bring us joy. We will hear the sweet tone of his voice. And we will bask in the sound of his laughter and the feel of his arm around our shoulder as we connect with God relationally in the fullest of expression. Oh my, Paul knew what I, the best part of life here is friendship with God. But when I get there, <laughs> the Lord and I are going to connect. Let me illustrate. I have a friend named Steve DeWitt. He's a pastor of a big church in northwest Indiana called Bethel. In fact, he's preached at our church some summers, and he'll be preaching again this summer at some of our campuses, at least. Steve and I got together two weeks ago with our wives. We both married Jennifers, and we wanted them to meet each other. And so we were in Wheaton having a a meal together. And I knew a little bit of Steve's and his Jennifer's story, so I asked them to share it. I go, hey, guys, tell how you met and how the relationship began. I want my wife to hear it. And they were like, all right. It was kind of interesting. Steve was pastoring this church, but as a single man, he was 43 years old and had never been married. Wanted to be married desperately, but just couldn't find the right girl. And he said, one of the things that happened is that old uh, women in his church would constantly come up to greet him and they would shove a piece of paper in his hand. 
And he'd go open it up, and it's got the name of a, a woman and a phone number on it. And they would say, give her a call, you know. And he, he said they all wanted to play matchmaker. And usually he'd thank them nicely and throw it away. He goes, but this one, I don't know. I just thought, I'm going to try it. I'm going to give her a call. And so he called her up. He goes, it was very awkward. You know, I'm like, hi, Jennifer, we both know so-and-so. And she thought it would be a good idea if we talked. He said, but the awkwardness faded away. And it was just a delightful conversation, which led to another phone call and another phone call. And Steve said, I fell in love with Jennifer over the phone. And Jennifer said, I fell in love with Steve over the phone. Isn't that cool? It's kind of like us and God. You know, we kind of talk to him over the phone, don't we? I mean, we talk to him in prayer. We hear from him again in the Bible and in the Word. But we can't see him. And as great as connecting with him is in that way, there's a side of us that just longs for the relationship to be together more. Well, with Steve and Jennifer, eventually Jennifer said, I'm coming to Northwest Indiana. I want to meet you. I want to experience your church. And he said, okay. And uh, he told me, he goes, when I was at the airport waiting for this girl I had fallen in love with to come off the plane, he said, I, I was just, my heart was screaming. He goes, I was just so excited. And when she came to see her, to give her a hug, he goes, it was amazing. And as he's describing it, oh, that's heaven. The one we have loved and fallen for, we will finally get to be with. In the case of Steve and Jennifer, his uh, relationship progressed quickly. Uh, he, why waste time, right? He proposed marriage soon, and she accepted, and the wedding came, and she left her home far away and her job far away to be his wife and to live together. And that's what heaven is. It's living together with our Lord in the way that we taste in part now, but crave. The more we love him here, the more we long for that relationship with our maker that will fill us with a joy like we've never thought possible. Paul knew it. And so he goes, why am I really craving to get off the monorail? Because I know who's waiting for me at the other side. I will find friendship with my God at unprecedented levels. All right, one more. Which is better by far? I love this little phrase. Paul simply refers to heaven as better by far. He's contrasting it to living in this world. And uh, you'll notice that the phrase better by far is three words. Well, curiously, in the uh, Greek original language, it's three words there also. Uh, The scholars call it a triple comparative. Uh, It's three words when one could have been enough. He could have said, heaven is better. Um, That would have said it, but Paul would probably say, not say it well enough. And so he adds another comparative in the Greek. It says, much better. And it's like Paul's like, eh. It's still not saying it. Much, much better. He's just piling on these comparative words, trying to convey that when uh, living on in this life is contrasted with heaven, we realize heaven is better by far. You know what's so sad? A lot of Christians have this sense that somehow heaven's worse than earth. I don't 
get it. Maybe it's, you know, the Bible does say that there won't be marriage in heaven. And so some people are like, no sex. And, you know, they're, they're, they're driving to conclusions that, you know, maybe, here, here's what I would tell you. This world represents God's creative genius in part, where that one will demonstrate it in full. And anything that you love in this life will have an expression, a replacement that's better by far. Like my relationship with my wife, though it may not be marriage, this covenant, it will be another covenant relationship that is better by far. And so friends, don't for a minute imagine that oh, somehow heaven's you know, worse. No! Everything you love about this life will have an expression in the next only better by far. It's like Wilmot Mountain. Do you know what that is? Uh, just over the border in Wisconsin, here's a picture of, of Wilmot Mountain. I, I hesitate to call it a They call it a mountain. It's a hill. Actually, it's not even a hill. It's a landfill. It's a garbage pile, literally, that they put dirt over to make this bump. And uh, no, I love Wilmot. I'll maybe be clear. I skied there a lot. You know, you, you ride up a real slow uh, chairlift, and then you go, and then you go up again, whee, and that's it, you know. And I have a, a cousin who just loves skiing, and he lives right by Wilmot, and so he is there all the time, has skied Wilmot endlessly. And then he had an opportunity to go to Colorado, to the Rockies. And he turned to me because he knew I had skied in Colorado a number of times, and he said, cousin, what am I in for? Tell me what Colorado skiing is like. And I'm like, awesome. And he's like, no, no, no. Contrast it to Wilmot for me. <laughs> and I'm like, well, uh, technically they're both skiing, but the comparison ends there. I mean, it's just no, I mean, this is just wee. And there you are on a high speed lift that raises you thousands of feet to these majestic peaks and you take off skiing at speeds you've never, you couldn't even achieve on this bump, feeling the wind as you weave through these paths for mile upon mile. It seems you could go forever. It, it's, there's no comparison. That's just a wee, and that's this, El Colorado. And it dawns on me, that like with him, I wanted to say, you haven't really even skied yet. And to those of us on this side of death, which would be all of us, we haven't even lived yet. When we get there, we will realize that is so much better by far that it just kind of makes this life laughable in comparison. And so friends, uh, don't think you're going to uh, the type B that's somehow lesser. Oh no, this is a prototype. Just giving us a little excitement. All the beauty that's here is just kind of getting us ready for the fuller expression of God's creative masterpiece abilities. All right, let's go to the verse again. 
Why is Paul calling death gain? Well, for one, he knows it's not an end. It's, it's the beginning. It's the parting on the greatest adventure you could ever imagine. Two, he knows that it's, at its core, the greatest thing about heaven is friendship with the almighty king, the maker of all, in a way that will fill your heart beyond your wildest dreams. And when contrasting the glories of this world with that, he says, no, there is much, much better in every way. Paul goes, why would I dread that, man? Step off the monorail. There's the magic kingdom. Let's do it. You know, when I got done working through this passage of Scripture with my friend Robert who wrote this book, he said, man, if you're right, if that is true, that is the most enchanting reality imaginable. And he said, I hope you're right. And I hope I'm going there. And I go, you hope, huh? He goes, yeah, well, you know, I think I will. He goes, I, I've really tried to live a good life. I'm like, oh, it's the biggest mistake people make. He goes on, he says, yeah, I was, I'm, you know, religious, Jeff. I was raised in a church-going family. I was baptized as an infant. I've said prayers, and I really try to live a moral life. I haven't been perfect, but I've been better than most. And, I, you know, when the, when the guy's got a clock that's ticking, I decided to be more frank than I would normally be. And I just said, hey, listen, if that's your hope, you'll never get to heaven. And I said, if you think you're good enough by your own doing, that is precisely the heart attitude that will keep you out of the reality we just studied. You don't need a savior. See, Christianity, uh, God's plan, is all about one who rescues, one who desperately needs rescuing. Jesus Christ is the rescuer, the savior. And the Bible says that we need to do the opposite of what my friend was doing. We need to get to a place where we say, I'm not good enough. In fact, I'm a mess. I understand that in so many ways I've failed to do things God's asked me to do. And I've done so many things God forbid me from doing. I'm a train wreck without hope unless Jesus saves my soul. And I told him, you, you need to admit your sin and cry out to Christ and ask him to apply what he did on the cross. That's his death on your behalf. Apply that death penalty to your life so you can be forgiven. And my friend said, uh, yeah, I don't buy that. He goes, that, that's kind of, I mean, I haven't been raised that way, he said. I, I believe you got to live a good life, and I'm pretty sure I have. I gave him some verses, said, you need to pray and read these. I came back and debated with him again, gave him more verses. He was still resistant, though not quite as much. And finally, the week of his death, days before his death, in the hospital, body breaking down, mind still crystal sharp. I arrived at the hospital, and he's just got tears in his eyes, and he says, oh, Jeff, I've been a fool. I've been a fool. He said, I am a sinner. Who am I kidding? My failure is disgusting before God, and I need a Savior. Pray with me, Pastor. Pray with me. He didn't mean me to pray with him, but he had waited. And so we bowed. And with authenticity and a humility that was astounding, he said, Jesus, save my soul. Forgive my sin. And he died a few days later, and he died well. May we do so 
likewise. In fact, as we close in prayer, I want to give everyone a chance to pray that prayer. Even as we describe heaven, as we talk about the one way in, you may be like, ah, I didn't know that. Thanks for uh, making that clear. And so let's turn to him in prayer and pray as he did. You know, I'm praying, but all of you, I'm thinking of you at the campuses. The Lord's not interested in what I say as much as what you say silently in your heart. God's listening to whether you ignore this opportunity or take him up on this great invitation. Shall we pray? Lord, uh, death is looming for us all. And God, we want to be ready for that great transition. And so right now, we are humbly admitting we're not perfect. In fact, we've messed up in significant ways, failing to do what you've called us to, failing to avoid what you've told us to avoid. And Lord, we're sorry. We're repenting of our sin. And Jesus, we're asking you to save the day. You're our only hope, Jesus. Take away this sin. Forgive us. Apply what you did on the cross to our lives so that we can be made new in this moment as a gift from you. And then take our lives, Jesus. We want to do the rest of eternity with you. Lead us. Strengthen us. Make our lives beautiful, both now and for eternity. Jesus, you're our only hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.